Welcome to the Loop Ventures Neurotech Podcast. I'm Doug Clinton. Today we have an episode we've recorded live in our Minneapolis office with Mary Beth Henderson from RCRI. Mary Beth is the Vice President of Regulatory Affairs and Quality Systems at RCRI, which is a great medical device consulting firm in Minneapolis. To put it more simply, Mary Beth is an expert on all things medical device related. In this conversation, we talk about everything from when a company should start working on its regulatory strategy to what they need to do after clearance. I thought it was a great discussion to help understand better the regulatory environment. So with that, I bring you Mary Beth Henderson. Mary Beth, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for coming. Mm -hmm. So you were in our offices probably a month, six weeks ago, and I don't know if you know this, but internally we said Mary Beth is an assassin because <laughs> you came in and you gave us so much knowledge about the regulatory space sure. and medical sure. devices. And so the reason we wanted to do the podcast is to have you share some of that knowledge with our listeners. All right. And so maybe to start, could you give a background of kind of how you got to RCRI and your experience in the regulation world? Sure. Actually, my early experience in the regulation world was not very favorable from my point of view because I was running laboratories and really resented people coming in to audit my laboratories. Yeah. My background is chemistry. I did a lot of product development, project management early in my career a lot of analytical lab kind of stuff, and then moved into a position where I had responsibility for both the R&D groups and the reg and quality groups. Mm -hmm. And so I could take a little more global view of stuff mm -hmm. as opposed to just looking at my silo and my people and what I had to do to move a project forward, which is helpful. The other thing that helped me is... I worked for a relatively small company that was part of a large corporation and so was able to be exposed to a lot of different kinds of things from the business side, because even if you have clearance, if nobody wants to buy it, you don't have a business. Right. Or if you're not competitive somehow in the marketplace, it doesn't matter if you have a clearance or an approval. And so having that perspective also helps. And I think that's one thing we try to talk to our clients about is you can't have a business strategy that doesn't talk to your regulatory strategy, that doesn't talk to your R&D program that doesn't talk to your reimbursement strategy. Mm -hmm. Because if you do, well, you'll be doing something else in about 18 months. <laughs> yeah. And so I had actually used RCRI as a consultancy when I was working for a medical device company here in Minneapolis. I spent about 10 years in the Boston area and a couple of years in the Columbus, Ohio area early in my career. And when I started looking to do something different, because life had become kind of Groundhog Day-ish, as it often does in, mm -hmm. in organizations, I spoke to the owners and I said I'd be interested. And I came into this market not from the cardio side. So I had never worked for Medtronic. I had never worked for Boston side. Mm -hmm. I really didn't know much about heart anatomy, right? Mm -hmm. So I was kind of a different entity for them to have in their portfolio. And so started consulting and it's been really a lot of fun. 
I'm a baseball fan and I look at us as a utility Mm -hmm. player. We're not the guys you go to if you have a single problem all the time. We're not closers. We have people that can address pretty much any type of product or project because of their combination of experience, because there is a little bit of a language that you have to learn to speak when you do a regulatory submission, but also because they know how to solve problems. Just like everything else in business, a lot of this is identifying the problem and figuring out how we get from A to B without upsetting the apple cart. So that's how I got to RCRI. I've been there 12 years, worked on some really crazy projects, worked on some really fun projects, helped people with some really acutely important projects. And I like the change. I always say, if you're a senior regulatory person, you're probably working on anywhere from four to eight projects at a time. For some people that doesn't work because they have trouble juggling the timelines and triaging the priorities. Mm -hmm. But if it's a kind of work situation that you find exciting. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. I think the holistic approach that you mentioned was something Mm -hmm. we really appreciated when we talked before of kind of combining regulatory reimbursement and the entire business Mm -hmm. as one picture, not just siloed entities. And one thing I'd love to have you talk about is when a company needs to really start thinking about their regulatory strategy, given that viewpoint. Well, it's never too early. You certainly have to think about a strategy before you go out for funding, if you're in a regulated environment. I think the other thing that you need to think about as a business in general is, do you have to work in a regulated space? Do you have a concept that you may be able to take to market in a non-regulated space in order to give you some sort of revenue stream to get into a regulated space? Again, that's part of your business strategy. But until you have identified what your product is Mm -hmm. and can describe what it has to do, it's very difficult to do any kind of, you can't even do a marketing Mm -hmm. strategy, right? Yeah. Not to denigrate marketing strategies, but when a company is a point where they can describe their device, where they're thinking about prototyping, where they're looking for funding, they should have at a minimum, a high level regulatory assessment as to what they're going to need to address the geographies that they're thinking of and their business strategy. I mean, some businesses start and they're looking for a buyout. Mm -hmm. Okay. So is the buyout at IDE? In other words, is the buyout when you go into first in man or is the buyout after you get your PMA approval Mm -hmm. or is the buyout after you get a CE mark in Europe? Again, that's part of your long-term business strategy that's being influenced by your regulatory requirements because the further down that path you are, the more valuable your company is. Right. As long as you got a product, somebody's going to buy, right? Always goes back um, to buying. And, you know, we've worked with clients who started in a buyout mode and their product was successful enough that they decided to keep it close to their chest and, and ran their business for 10 or 12 years before they were finally bought out. So like everything in business, these things change as a function of your environment, as a function of what you're finding out as you do your research and development, and they need to be revisited. But if you don't know what you don't know, 
some of the surprises can be very expensive and can set you back. And when you're a small business, time is money. And sometimes it's not necessarily the expense of, say, developing the evidence. It's just the time and your burn rate as you develop that evidence. Yeah. And yeah, we rate. can't do anything if you don't have evidence. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. As, you know, we, since we deal with startups so much, mm-hmm. I'm curious and I'm sure part of the answer is it always depends, mm-hmm. but is there a general. See, we have talked before, well, yeah, right? Exactly. <laughs> You've been doing that very well. But for a given startup, is there a general framework that you come into a meeting with saying, okay, these are sort of the components we need Mm -hmm. to figure out for you to eventually develop this strategy and start to implement? Yeah, probably the hardest thing that an entrepreneur or an inventor or somebody who's going to, what's the new phrase, disrupt Disrupt, the marketplace, right, (laughs) to do is limit what they want to do. For us, and actually for all of these different disciplines and plans, you need to be able to tell me what your product is. You need to be able to tell me who's going to use it, where it's going to be used. Is it going to be a prescription product? Is it going to be sold over the counter? If it's an orthopedic product, is it going to be used in the shoulder or the knee? Because there are very few products in FDA that have general what we call indications for use. Mm -hmm. There are a few, but there aren't many left anymore. So if I have a product that goes into the knee that I can use in the shoulder, that's actually two different filings. That's not a single filing. You need to be able to tell me who's going to use it. Is it physicians? Is it healthcare workers? Is it other healthcare workers? Is it people at home? Is it the patient themselves? Once you can do that, it's like anything. The more information you can bring to the party, And the fewer assumptions that you're forced to make as you Mm -hmm. develop your plan, the more concrete that plan can be. And so a lot of what we do at the end of the day, a 510K is a 510K is a 510K. It has finite elements. And for some products, there may be some special things that need to go into them. But at the end of the day, it's 21 sections long and we need to fill in all of those blanks, right? So first we have to decide, is that the filing for you or are you a PMA or are you something called a de novo, which is a little different kind of filing. And then once we know that, or once we're more or less confident of that, sometimes you don't know. Sometimes it's a shade of gray area and there are mechanisms within FDA where you can actually have that question answered for you. But, you know, 95% of the time we know that. Mm -hmm. And then we can lay out the requirements to get you to where you want to be from a clearance or approval perspective. The most important thing, that's a long way of saying, I need to know your indication for use. Yeah, (laughs) That's really the most important thing. And sometimes what you want to claim is going to influence your strategy. Yeah. So for example, what you want to claim and how you get there. If I have a general scalpel, that's a class one device. But if I have a scalpel that uses laser energy, that's a class two device. Yeah. If I have a TENS device that's being used for knee pain, that's a class two device. If I have a TENS device that's being used in the spine, that's a class three device. Mm. And sometimes it's a, and now in device more than when I started doing this, if I have a device that can be used in a general population and it's a PMA device, then I have to have pediatric information. Mm -hmm. Okay. 
Well, that might be two clinical studies, not one, depending on how the device is used and where your patients are located. Yeah. So do I want that pediatric, do I absolutely need that pediatric indication early on? Or can I live with an adult indication and then generate pediatric data afterwards? And that's kind of a second tier strategy consideration as you move forward. And our job is to give a client the most up-to-date information about where his or her product sits within the regulatory spectrum. And that changes too. But in general, if you're well enough funded so you can run your plan in a two to five year process, depending on how complex it is and how complex your clinical trial may be if you need one, then that landscape isn't going to change dramatically. Mm -hmm. But if you come in five years ago and you say, here's our product, can you file a pre-sub for us, which is a way to get FDA feedback, we can do that. But five years later, if you come back and say, well, now we're ready to do a clinical trial, we may want to go back in just to make sure that the assumptions we made five years ago are still valid. And in a lot of therapy areas, that's not as big a deal. You do a lot of work in neurology, right? Mm -hmm. That's a bigger deal in neurology because it's a faster changing environment and there's a lot of stuff going on. Interesting. I'm curious. I think maybe part of this is a byproduct of how much time we spend in early stage. Sure. We find it's very easy for entrepreneurs to get really excited about their technology, Mm -hmm. but maybe not have the use cases figured out. As you think about assumptions and you work through their assumption set with mm-hmm. these companies as a consultant, is that the same place where they tend to fall down the most to or different places? Yeah. What we find, and it runs the gamut, right? But as the biggest lump of in the real early stage, this is my baby kind of engagement, sometimes there isn't the discipline there to go out and find the use cases because that's not their sweet spot, right? right? They're where they are now because they're innovative. Right, they know the technology. And if they haven't been around a few blocks, their network isn't such where they have somebody next to them that says, ah, but wait, have you thought about, and what about this, and where else can you use it, and what's a real marketing strategy look like, and how do we get that information, and where do we go to get that information? Mm -hmm. And so I think some of it is a function of, just the type of person that might be starting these kinds of ventures. Every year we work with a handful of MDs who have an innovative product that they want to bring to market, right? Some of them have MBAs. Most of them don't, Mm -hmm. right? And that's fine. But again, you can't develop a business only on an idea. You need all those other pieces you don't need them all at once, but you need you do need them. Yeah. And sometimes I think what happens is, especially early on, there's a finite amount of cash. And if you're spending money on planning, you're not moving the product right. forward, right? Yep. And that's where your milestones are with your investors. I can exactly. speak from experience. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So it's balancing act and successful people learn how to make those decisions and perhaps leverage some of their expertise to kind of move the ball forward a little faster than others. 
You know, there's something that stuck with me when we talked in December. You talked about a few companies that you've worked with and they thought they might have class three devices and they ended up being class two devices mm-hmm. or vice versa. Mm-hmm. How does something like that manifest? Because if you're a company, assuming that you fall in one of these classes has a huge impact on how you think about raising money and building your exactly. business because it's much more expensive to go through a PMA process, obviously, than a 510K. How does that happen? It doesn't happen often. I will say it does not happen often. In my experience, it happens when a company comes from outside the U.S. where the classification Mm -hmm. is different into the U.S. Because there are certain types of devices that are either up-classified or down-classified, depending on if you're selling them in Europe or selling them in Canada or selling them in Australia. You know, most people don't go to Japan first unless you're a Japanese company. Mm -hmm. That would be a function of geography. And an assumption that if it's a class three in Canada, it's class three in in the States. Sometimes it's a function of a serial entrepreneur who has always done 510K devices (laughs) and just assumes that everything's 510K. Yeah. And, you know, certainly in a couple of those cases, yeah, we probably could have filed a 510K for them. But we were able to find project codes where it was actually a class one device. Now, in one instance, the client wanted a piece of paper that says, yes, this is a class one device. Well, FDA, yeah. there is a mechanism for that. that we don't yeah. use that that often. But That's in this funny. case, they wanted us to do that. For them. Put it in writing for yeah. me. <laughs> uh-huh. yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, you know, that's the other thing. So I'm an entrepreneur. I have investors. My investors want to make sure that I'm doing what I need to do. Mm-hmm. If you're a class one yeah, device, there's no evidence that you have clearance, mm-hmm. right? You just sell the device, right? That's right. So that becomes a little confounding for some startups because their investors are saying, but where's your 510K? Yeah. Well, we don't have one. Yeah. Okay. So then maybe you can point to your registration. But other than that, you're not going to get a, like in Europe, you're not going to have that CE mark certificate. Yeah. If you're a class one device, it doesn't happen too often, but it does happen occasionally. Yeah. Super valuable. Well, and, it does. You know, and then the me. other thing too is kind of a classic strategy for a number of years was get into the market with a device that meets a 510K claim. And then add the claims that you know is going to bump it into a PMA. And again, that's a function of just having some sort of a money stream so that you can fund your your PMA work. In the diagnostic world for many, many years, you did a veterinary product first because veterinary devices aren't regulated. There are some now, but, you know, 15 years ago, they weren't regulated at all. So you'd put out a veterinary product, you'd sell that, Mm -hmm. okay, which has the, the downside of... Now, all your attention is here where you really want a product here. All your attention is getting this veterinary business up and running and you really want a human product, right? You know, it's the, oh, squirrel kind of mentality where, again, you have a finite amount of resources. Where are you going to spend those resources to get to where you really want to be? And is this distraction have enough benefit Hmm. so that it makes sense in the long run? Yeah. That's a business decision. That's not a regulatory decision. But if I give you those options, then at least you know those options are available for you to consider as you move forward. Yeah, it's an interesting when we talked about this again when we met before that 
RCRI, you help kind of with that entire package. It's not just come to us for regulatory. You help companies work through the entire. Yeah, we don't do market landscape. We do health economic assessments, which are health economic landscape assessments, which are kind of a subset of what would be a traditional market analysis if you were going to get an MBA. But we can help with the clinical strategy. We can help with the regulatory strategy. We can help with the reimbursement. We are not a test lab, but we have people that can help with interpreting what the standards say and what the protocol should look like and that kind of thing. You know, we don't do project management per se, but we often tend to manage projects when the regulatory piece becomes critical. So if you're at a point where you've got everything ready and now you've got to pull your submission together, that's when we tend to become the de facto project manager for an organization in the short run Yeah, because we can't do our work unless the team provides us with their work and it's got to be work we can put into a submission, right? right? Yeah. yeah. That makes sense. <laughs> I have a question. I've actually never asked anyone this before. I'm excited to hear the answer. Okay. But, but, you know, we think so much about what is the process to get to approval or exemption, mm-hmm. but we don't talk a lot about what happens after that. Oh, yeah. So after you get your PMA, let's say, sure. what does the process or relationship look like with the FDA going forward? So it will depend on the type of device that you have. But for all companies that are selling medical devices in the States, you are required to register and list with the FDA on the FDA's website within 30 days of your first sale. Mm -hmm. So irrespective of the kind of product you sell, class one, class two, class three, you need to register. And there's a finite cost of that. It's about $4,900 this year. FDA has something called a small business program. Mm-hmm. And so if you're a small business, which I think is total revenue, including sales, grants, et cetera, et cetera, under $30 million, your first PMA is free. So that's about a $350,000 gimme, mm-hmm. all right? Just the first PMA. There are other We'll talk about those in a minute. And then you pay lower rates for things like your 510K filings and your de novo filings. And if you have a PMA, your, your annual updates, those kinds of things. The only place you're not going to get a break as a small business is that registration. Everybody pays the same. So you register. If you have a class one device, you're responsible for making sure that your quality system is up to date. So you have to do things like internal audits. You have to have a complaint program in place. You have to be ready for an FDA inspection. FDA inspects, they don't audit. (laughs) Um, You have to be ready for an FDA inspection should FDA come knocking on your door. Now, the odds of FDA knocking on a company that only sells class one devices are relatively low, but there's a list and FDA works through the list. So rather than every other year, you may not see FDA for five years or even 10 years, but FDA has every right to come in and inspect your facility. If you're a class two product, the good news is that if you make certain types of changes, you don't have to have prior approval from FDA or refile. If you make other kinds of changes to your device, you may have to file a new 510K. So FDA has actually put out some reasonably good guidance on when they expect you to file, when they don't expect you to file. 
you walk it through, you justify why you chose to file or why you didn't choose to file. And this is all part of your change system and your quality system, right? That's all your evidence. If it's a discrete change. So let's say I have a product and I am currently sterilizing it using steam. And now I want to take the exact same product and sterilize it by ethylene oxide. That's a single change, right? You need one set of experts to look at that information. And that would qualify as a special 510k. It's a 30-day review. So you don't have the 90-day review you have as the traditional 510k. And the filing fee is slightly lower than with a fee. Other than that, if you're a 510k business, again, you you need a complaint system. You need to be ready for inspection. And you have to re-register every year. Yeah. In the PMA world, it's different. And the reason for that is there are no manufacturing deviations in the PMA world. So if I have a line that goes down, I can't substitute anything into that line to keep that product up and running without telling FDA and, oh, by the way, that's a 30-day review, Yeah. right? You have to be more mindful of change when you have class three products because you can't make your changes just because some guy in marketing thought this would be a cool idea, right? right? And every year you are required to file an annual report and there's a finite cost for the annual report. And I think I wrote it down here because I never remember, which is $11,000 for a large company and about $3,000 for a small company. That report needs to be filed yearly by the date that you receive clearance or approval. So the care and feeding of a PMA post-approval is more costly because of the filing fees, but also you have to have people Mm -hmm. that are doing this for you and understanding when you need to file, when it's a reportable event, when it's a 30 day, when it's 180 day. For some operations, it's 180 days before FDA will allow you to make that change. So it's more planning. And some organizations struggle with that, especially if they're very entrepreneurial and are used to making changes on the fly. That leads me into my last question. I have, mm-hmm. you know, the upkeep seems fairly reasonable. It's, mm-hmm. it's organization for the most mm-hmm. part. And one thing that we hear a lot from entrepreneurs is that the FDA has had a move to try to be a little more friendly to innovation. Mm-hmm. Do you think that that's true? Yes, with a star. Okay. I think FDA has recognized that technology is changing faster than it did in the 70s. I mean, medical devices have only been regulated since 76, right? It's amazing. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, it is when you think about it. But looking at the technology in 76 versus 2019, our ability to prototype even has changed dramatically since when I started my, I did a lot of prototype molding when I lived in Massachusetts and worked with some really, really clever guys But my, I mean, even with a box of donuts, my turnaround time was never less than two weeks, right? Mm -hmm. Now, if you've got a 3D printer, it's the time it takes you to load it into the printer, right? So those kinds of things have all changed. And FDA has acknowledged that, you know, there are a couple of programs on the device side. There's something called the Breakthrough Program, which allows organizations that have devices that meet unmet needs, 
to go through FDA with an advocate at FDA. So you get a program manager at FDA and the program manager helps you get answers more quickly. So for example, if you're designated a breakthrough product and you send in what's called a pre-submission to get FDA feedback, your turnaround is 45 days. That's the goal, 45 days. If you're not a breakthrough product, the goal is 75 days. So you gain a little time there. You do have your contact at FDA. It doesn't give you a pass as to what evidence you need to collect, right? You still need to collect the evidence. And sometimes it's a newer product. So FDA wants to see some proof of concept that's robust. But part of this whole breakthrough process is something called a development plan, a device development plan. And that lays out what you're going to do to get to the point where you can submit and to get onto the market. And part of the concept is to allow you to collect some performance data post-approval rather than pre-approval. I know there's been at least one breakthrough product that's actually been approved. There may be a couple more that are teed up for approval this year. I think if a company goes down that road, whether they're large or small, they need to manage their investors or their boards or their management because just because your breakthrough doesn't mean it's going to go necessarily at the speed of light. You still have to generate that evidence. You still have to make sure that your product is safe and effective for use. The other advantage of that is when you do file your submission, you go to the head of the queue. Generally, FDA takes submissions as they come in through the door. But if you are a breakthrough product, you go to the head of the queue. So there's an advantage there. They've got something called the STEP program, which is in development. It's not, I mean, I've seen it discussed and Sharon and God, who's the other guy? I can't remember. It doesn't matter. Talked about it in their kind of end of the year speeches, but basically it's breakthrough like for products that are safer Mm -hmm. than products that are already in the field. So if you have a medical device that lowers the risk to the patient, or provides a safer pathway to treatment, Mm -hmm. then the thought is, you know, these are not products that address an unmet need. These are products that address a need that's being met, but they address it more safely. And so that program should be rolled out in the next, I would guess, three to six months by FDA. And this is all part of something they call their safety action plan. That was pushed out as part of the 21st Century Cures Act. So guidance is coming out faster. I think guidance is more reflective of what's going on. I mean, small thing, but FDA doesn't require a paper copy anymore, which is a big deal if you've got a 22-volume PMA that's going in, right? I mean, it's a big deal. You know, so little things like, you know, welcome to the 21st century. It's all good. But, you know, at the end of the day, They need to err on the side of being more conservative because, you know, not only is there imprimatur to help innovation, but it's to guard public safety. And so they do walk a fine line. Yeah. Although I would say that it's, you know, if you do your homework and you have your information, they're more collaborative than they have been. Yeah. It's good to hear that they're finding a healthy balance, I think. Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it, actually. Yeah. 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 All right. 
last question. Okay. We always like to ask everybody who comes on what they're reading in their field. So are there any books that you're enjoying right now about the field of regulation or maybe just healthcare in general? Ooh, well, the short answer is no. When I read, I read for pleasure because I read so much (laughs) when I'm on the job. In this business, you tend to read a lot of standards, guidance documents. Mm -hmm. The FDA website, once you figure out how to find information, is a pretty good good thing. And there's a lot of stuff going on in Europe now. Mm -hmm. I've read that law like eight times in the last eight months because it's huge. Nobody's got any experience with it because we're in a transition period. You know, this is a great question because I'm thinking, are there any books? <laughs> and offhand, I honest to God can't think okay. of any. No That's a great question. We'll link to a few of the <laughs> FDA and the, the European regulations in the yeah. show notes. But that's all I have for you. Thanks for joining us. My this pleasure. This was great. A lot of fun. It was fun, too. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.